Well, hello, and welcome to this new episode of Head and Heart, a podcast by Probe Ministries. I'll be your host today, Paul Rutherford. The other day, I sat down and had a conversation with my colleague and coworker Byron Barlow, and we asked the question, can you trust your Bible? It was a really good conversation. We talked about things like scripture and canon, a number of things. So I want you to listen in here and check out this conversation with Byron Barlow about whether or not you can trust your Bible, because you can. And if you can, then the things that Jesus said in it are true. And he said some pretty, pretty amazing things with some crazy implications about how you should live your life. So... What Jesus said is not just information, not just words, but also can change your life. And so that's why this matters, and that's why you should listen up. So I hope this blesses you today, listener, as you're driving around doing whatever you're doing. Check out this conversation. Can you trust your Bible? Hello, and welcome to this new podcast from Probe Ministries. I am your host today, Paul Rutherford. I'm a research associate here at Probe Ministries. And today, we're going to talk uh, about the question, can you trust your Bible? Can you trust your Bible? It's a big question. It's kind of a loaded question. There's lots of ways to answer it, lots of things to discuss, and I'm looking forward to having this really meaningful, really important conversation. Today I have uh, invited my coworker and colleague to have this conversation with me. I'm excited uh, to have it. He uh, is a research associate and um, worldview researcher, as he likes to call himself, uh, here at Probe Ministry, has, has been for several years and uh, is currently also working on his master's in apologetics. And uh, so I'm going to welcome to the podcast today, Byron Barlow. Byron, good to have you. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here. Yeah. And I'm just about to finish the uh, degree program. Are you? And this stuff I'm in a class for right now. Okay. So I'm pretty excited about it. I bet it's fresh on the mind. Very fresh. Top of the mind. So I'm the best stuff to talk about. So I'm absolutely not an expert, but uh, I am excited about it. Hey, who is? Very few people are. <laughs> Well, a lot of believers revere and trust their Bible, but they don't really think about it very deeply. Okay. And a lot of us assume that God just gave it uh, as is, mm -hmm. and it's not quite like that. But a lot of people are also skeptical about the process and the product, we'll call it. Okay. The Bible as a product. The Bible. Right. Yeah. And its contents. So um, we want to talk about that a little bit. Some of the things that we want to talk about is how we got it, how it was handed down, in other words, and whether it was really from God, and that's the idea of inspiration, how the contents were chosen, and uh, whether we can really trust whether Jesus said the words in the Gospels. So those, it's, it's kind of a lot of stuff, Yep. but I want to fly over and set us up for maybe some future conversations. Even better. Even better. I mean, when we're talking about something like the Bible, <laughs> it's a huge topic. It's oh, a yeah. huge book. It's an old book. It's mm -hmm. a controversial book. It's obviously a very popular book, one of the most printed books historically in all time, mm -hmm. of course. The most sold book ever. There you go. It's also been highly criticized. Lots of people have lots of questions. Lots mm. of people have really serious questions about the Bible and whether or not it can be trusted, whether or not it's really true, mm. whether or not it, what's recorded in it is really true. But, you know, as a part of these, the questions that you just mentioned that we want to talk through today, do you mind sharing something that you learned recently that you just told me a couple minutes ago in terms of um, the, just the discussion about trusting your Bible and that recent aha moment for you? Well, one of the things that I had not really considered was what was meant by inspiration. God gave us the Bible, and I thought it was that simple yeah. for decades. And I benefited from the Bible. I know that it's the living, active Word of God mm -hmm. because it changes and transforms my 
life. It cuts through to the motives of my heart. Mm -hmm. And when I use it, so to speak, I benefit, and other people do too. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't understand was that when I got into the details of how we got the thing, the collection of writings, that there's a lot of messiness. There's a lot of organic, long-term stuff going on here that does look questionable on the surface, at least. Mm -hmm. But there are answers for those things. Mm -hmm. And it really speaks of God's grace, the way he got it to us. Yeah. And bottom line, I believe that he preserved it well. Yeah. You know, and the more you get into these issues, the more complicated it can be, the more complex it can be, and the more difficult it is. I know just from my own relatively small surface level studies, it can get complicated quick. And there, mm-hmm. that's why there are guys, as you were telling me in a minute ago, who are experts in biblical studies. There are guys who devoted their entire lives and gals to researching and reading this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't say they've gotten to the bottom of many areas, for sure. But I know that that's one thing that we wanted to record this podcast for you who are, who are listening to realize that, what, what did you say a minute ago? We, we want you at the end of this podcast to come out saying, wow, I have even more questions now that I did to begin with. Exactly. Not that we want to shake your faith or to doubt the existence of God or the reliability or trustworthiness right. of the Bible, but rather to say this amazing and unique book that we've received has come to us in not a simple manner, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. And the more we learn today, and scholars are just now admitting that we've got these Western ideas, Mm. and we've kind of read them back onto the past, Uh or as a psychologist might say, we've uh, projected onto the past, and we need to take a fresh look and say, my goodness, what were they intending, and how was it written? So there's all kinds of discoveries waiting to be made, and it first, it can seem like a compromise, or it might be scandalous even, but it need not be. What we do know is that we have the intended Word of God. I think we can be very sure of that. Even skeptical scholars are really sure that we have what was written down. So, and that, there's debate, but let's talk about that. Yeah. So let's dive into those. You wanted to ask three questions just in this kind of flyover podcast Mm -hmm. to begin with, right? Do we have the original stuff of the Bible? Mm -hmm. Question two, do we have the right books and the right letters, the stuff that is in the Bible now? Because some of it's not in there, right? Right. And then the third question, do we know that Jesus' sayings really got through in the Gospels? Do we really faithfully have what he really said? Mm -hmm. Those three things. Right, right. Yes, and as we've emphasized probably twice already, this is a quick tour. And so mm-hmm. we're kind of driving through the town and saying, hey, there's a site over there. There's the famous bridge. And look at that building. Along the way, there's some takeaways that we can assure ourselves with and then explore more later. Yeah. And so part of that flyover, as you're talking about, to use your uh, metaphor of flying over a town and looking at the whole city and admitting, as we've already talked about, just how complex the Bible is, part of that to be specific, would be that the Bible is written in multiple different languages, Mm -hmm. right? In the originals, right? The Bible was written over hundreds of years, if not thousands, right? Uh, It was written by multiple different authors in different cultures and different places, right? So there's this enormous complexity Mm -hmm. into the, the book that we now have in one volume, but it didn't quite come together as such. Yeah, we have uh, lots of different personalities involved, uh, the inspired authors. We didn't have a long period of it being written, but we have a couple of hundred years where people were deciding what was the Bible. Okay, right. Because there was a tradition that got handed down, the sayings of Jesus, 
the expansion on that by the apostles and the eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. And then people started writing it down. But a lot of that was based in oral tradition because that's the way the Middle East works. And it still is that way over there. And we can learn a lot from that. So I mentioned not projecting onto the past, our current way of thinking. Yep. But we also need to understand that they didn't pass things on the way we do either. Mm. So we'll get into that, especially in talking about whether we got Jesus' sayings or not. Okay. But remember, we're talking about the entire Bible. We're talking about the New Testament and the Gospels. Yes. So we're kind of biting off a ton here, and we'll choose some of it. Okay. You know, it's easiest to talk about the the most famous scholarly skeptical foil here. Bart, the error man... Ehrman. Oh, Bart Ehrman. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He appears in all the books. Everybody argues about him, at least all the scholars. Yep. And he raises the biggest questions. Well, he was sitting in a seminary because he had a really golden conservative evangelical resume. Yep. He went to the famous schools. He went to the conservative ones like Moody. And he was sitting in seminary grappling with the seeming contradiction on who was high priest at the time of an event. And a prof wrote on the margin of the paper, what if Mark was mistaken? What if the gospel writer got it wrong? Herman says that was a watershed moment. Now, let me say that our listeners, I, everybody I know, kind of goes through that in class. I'm in an online class. And some of the posts on Blackboard are things like, well, we know the Holy Spirit guided people to write it. And so all of this detail work in history and ancient writings is kind of beside the point. Well, that may be true for someone's intact faith, but like Dr. William Lane Craig says, it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to show it. Yeah, sure is. So when we're doing evangelism or apologetics or teaching people about the worldview of it, we Mm -hmm. need to have something in our hip pocket. And so we need to be able to talk about the lost originals and the dating and the Greek copies there. We need to answer the questions that someone like Ehrman and people who he affects start asking. You might have come up with some of these questions yourself. Do we have the original autographs, the original copies of the Bible? Mm -hmm. Um, The answer is no. We don't. But how much does that matter? Can we reconstruct them? We'll talk more. The dating, were they really that close to the events? You know, after Jesus rose from the dead and Mm -hmm. left the earth, Mm -hmm. how long did it take for this stuff to get written down? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, oral tradition kept it going, and that's the way it worked back then. Initially. They didn't write. They didn't write like we do. They didn't have anything much. They weren't live-tweeting the crucifixion? They were not Snapchatting. It was not online. (laughs) Shucks. And they didn't have books and books on shelves the way we do here at Pro. But what they did have was the tradition that was once handed down from the saints. So, other questions. Did the scribes really mess things up, and was there a lot of copycatting going on? Were legends being... uh, Propagated, yeah. Was propaganda going on? distorted. Yes, was it distortion? And a related item is, look at all the variants. Look at all the ways that these books, especially the Gospels, don't agree. Yes. There's a lot of seeming contradictions, and there's some actual contradictions. Now, again, like you said, the more you study, the more complex it gets, but also the more scandalous it might look. And so, yeah, there are 
hundreds of thousands of variants. But what does that mean? Over the span of the many, many manuscripts we have, which is way more than other ancient documents, but we have for the New Testament so many that we can look and say, oh, almost all of them are inconsequential to the meaning. None of them even touch important doctrines of the faith. And a lot of them are so piddly that they don't mean beans, you know? <laughs> a little letter here, a mistranscribed note there, just little tiny things. And we can also tell when the scribes took it upon themselves to do a little bit of, uh, you know, doctoring of the text. Okay. We've got enough copies that we can... Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, retranslating or whatever. Okay. Which, by the way, did happen with the okay. writers. We'll get into that. Okay. But what I'm saying is that what we find is that we can tell we've got enough comparative analytical material we can look at that we know pretty much so we know that the, the originals that we have today even though what i heard you said a minute ago was that we do not have the original autographs right the first quote let's say the first edition using air mm. quotes that our listener can't see but we don't have those anymore right? right but what i hear you saying is that the bible that's on our bookshelf by many of these uh, really great English-speaking translations mm -hmm. are faithful copies. They're faithful copies of copies of copies uh, that are really faithful to the original. Right. And not only that, but you mentioned copies of copies of copies. Yeah. That is true, but it's misleading. Okay. Um, How but, so? Well, a lot of people think that there was something like the telephone game coming on. Okay. And, in fact... I think everyone intuits that. Do you mean like the telephone game I played in first grade? Yeah. Where the teacher would say, the duck is on the wire, and you had to whisper it in my friend's ear, and mm -hmm. then he would whisper it in his friend's ear, that one? Yeah, and yeah, it okay. ended up being something... Your hair is on fire. Your hair is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> something absurd and preposterous. Yeah, and so a very helpful analogy there is that, yeah, it got passed down, but here's the difference. Mm -hmm. If you did the party game like this, you whisper into the ear of the person beside you, and then they say what you said. No, better, you say it out loud in front of everybody. Oh. And everybody gets to say, no, 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 that's not what the original was. Mm. And everybody corrects it. That's a completely different kind of game. It wouldn't be as funny, but it's also much more accurate to what actually happened. So there we really weren't playing the telephone game here. We can actually recreate better than ever, even since the King James Version for example, mm -hmm. we can recreate much better, even in recent years, by uncovering more and more and more copies mm. so that we can look at it and comparatively do it. There's a, uh, a game that we play when I teach on this. Okay. It's called Aunt Sally's Secret Sauce. Okay. Now, that's a really fun game because I decided the recipe. I just made it up out of clear blue sky. Okay. You know, there's pickle juice, and pencil lead. Ew, gross. Yeah, and all kinds of crazy stuff together. Things I would not eat. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Gross. So, when you've got the actual recipe, you know, a pinch of that, a quarter teaspoon of this, a cup of this, you've got it all written down. That's the original autograph. Yes. But what we have in the transmission, and I tweaked it, we've got, okay, somebody left out the pickle juice. Somebody over here misspelled an item. And then something over here was added. Okay, that wasn't in the original recipe. Yes. 
whipped when, cream. They want whipped cream. Yeah, you, you stick some yeah. whipped cream in there, and it's the only copy that has that. Yeah. Well, don't you think that if the only, if only one copy has whipped cream, mm-hmm. doesn't that stick out like a sore thumb? Yeah. We can pretty much toss that one, right? Yeah. If if everyone with copies of Aunt Sally's secret sauce are getting together and mm-hmm. putting them next to each other and comparing, then then you could do that. That's exactly and right. So is that what you're saying about the process? Sorry, I don't mean to. Yeah, head to the point. That's exactly the process. But it, it sounds like when you compare this game, as you're calling it, this Aunt Sally's Secret Sauce game, compared to the telephone game, mm-hmm. Aunt Sally's Secret Sauce is much more uh, a realistic comparative process for how the Bible was transmitted through these manuscripts and, and repeated and copied over time, rather than telephone game, which exactly. happens one-on-one, in isolation, in secret, right? Because mm-hmm. you're whispering in someone's ear and no one else knows what it is. Right. When, in fact, these original manuscripts weren't secret. It wasn't only one person who knew what it was. In it, fact, if again, if our, if our current Bible is accurate, many of the New Testament letters and books were written to whole groups of people. Exactly. And, and it wasn't to an individual. It was to a whole group who would have read it and, and heard it, at least heard it and understood it and talked about it and processed it with mm-hmm. each other and understood, hey, here's was the point of that letter. It was something yeah. that was happening in, in community, in the community of faith in particular. It has right. a vested interest in preserving the accuracy and the faithfulness and the reliability of those letters. Well said. And you are dead right. It's a better analogy. And you know what? As you spoke, it reminds me that the skeptics mm-hmm. and our natural tendency is to think, oh, conspiracy. So there's yes. a lot of conspiracy theory going on. What you were just describing really well describes the canonization process, which is just a way to say, how did we get the bunch of books that's in the Bible? The canon. Okay. A canon of anything is the authoritative texts or materials. So it's not a gun? No. It's not something that goes boom. Dang it. <laughs> Although this one kind of does. <laughs> so we have the canon and the process there. There's We're skipping ahead here, but the canonization process by skeptics, according to them, and according to the famous Da Vinci Code, there's a conspiracy theory that came through that famous book and movie. Okay. And scholars like Barterman kind of traffic in this. And people wonder, hey, did these guys get together in Constantinople, the center of Christianity at the time, and did they decide as a committee with some agenda that this, no, this was the set of books that goes in the Bible? And did Emperor Constantine make an imperial decree? That's the storyline we get. That's the narrative that's foisted. Yep. It has absolutely no basis in fact. Oh, So. Yeah, there's one way to do propaganda, and it's through popular books and movies, and through the universities. So That sounds like the old saying, a lie has a way of flying around the world before the truth ever gets its boots on. Good old Mark Get Twain. Is that Mark Twain? Yeah. I probably it. butchered that, too. <laughs> <laughs> you got the gist of it, which is really another analogy for what we got here. We've got the Bible and its intentions. Okay. So another thing that we find out is that when you go through the different parts of the Bible, especially the New Testament, mm-hmm. with special focus on the Gospels, okay, yes, we definitely have what was originally intended. Definitely have what was originally intended. Within an almost 100% assurity. Wow. That's a pretty bold claim. Yes, it is. And we have somebody our ministry shares a wall with who is doing some practical work in the field about that. 
Well, let's talk about that. His name is Dr. Dan Wallace, and he teaches yes. at uh, Dallas Seminary. Dan Wallace, yeah. He's a cool guy. He's from Southern California. But he is very good about finding more and more stacks of comparable materials. So they're actually taking digital photographs of more and more manuscripts that they're finding. And remember, in the early days, at the early church, first century Palestine, they didn't go around making photocopies. They didn't have books that you could get printed off of Amazon within a few days. <laughs> they had to use expensive parchments and that many people didn't have access to. Okay. There weren't many copies. But we have what he calls an embarrassment of riches of copies of the New Testament, especially compared with other ancient documents. So when Dr. Dan Wallace talks about uh, Bart Ehrman's questions, and especially the part about did we lose the original New Testament? Yes. He says, if the question means, are the original New Testament documents lost, then, of course, we agree with Bart Ehrman. Only a quack would say, no, we have the original copies. Okay. But if the question means, is the New Testament wording lost, that's where Ehrman and I disagree, he says. So it's documents versus contents. Yep. And what matters most? that we got what people meant by something, even asking a lawyer whether this document contains what is legally binding or what actually happened is the important thing. Not, was it the same sheet of paper? Right. Or the same digital file? Yeah. Okay? You put it that way to me, I say, it's the contents, not the document. Absolutely. He says, we can be relatively certain in recovering the original words found somewhere in the text we have. In other words, among all Aunt Sally's secret sauce recipe copies, mm -hmm. we got the real secret sauce here. And he says, continuing, though some scribes did change the text, they did not succeed in eradicating the wording of the original. So try as they may to shed more light on it, to correct a little bit, or to emphasize something they thought was important. Because scribes did this. They're human. They were tired. They were sometimes a little bit uh, pushy, but they didn't get rid of the gist. They didn't lose the kernel okay. of the truth that got handed down, as you said, through the community, mm -hmm. through the gospel tradition. So that's really important. And that was one of the big aha moments for me. Was it? Yeah. So there's a false choice going on when somebody like Bart Ehrman or Richard Dawkins makes the claim that we did not get the New Testament passed down to us. A false choice between absolute certainty and radical skepticism, which yeah. leads to despair. Yeah. And, you know, I've joked that if 99 plus percent purity, which is what the experts claim, isn't good enough, then he's not operating on a, a mm. planet with fallen people in a fallen world. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. So, yeah, it's an un, uh, unrealistic expectation. Absolutely. Yeah. So, the other aha that people can have is just as God deals with us as humans, fallible, needing constant help, needing correction, training in righteousness, and all the things that the Word of God can do, so the process was messy using people who are fallible. Mm -hmm. And yet God comes through in His faithful covenant way, the way He always does. So we've got the message of God. Yeah, We can be very assured. There's some doubt 
And there's, you have to be humble, especially when you're dealing with a skeptic. You can't just say, I know it's God's word, and I know it because I feel it, and I've been taught it in the way, the way we was raised. <laughs> but, you know, that's not going to be very convincing. However, we can be so sure for our own faith that we're not tripping over this stuff. Yeah. Well, to go on with Wallace, he asks four questions in his, he actually debates Bart Ehrman. I think he's done it more than once. You know, officially okay. debating them. He says, number one, how many scribal changes are there? So the scribes did make changes. Give you a hint. They were regular, but they were uncommon. I mean, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of copies that scribes did over the centuries. But there was nothing unorthodox. And when there was, it was completely tossed. We can tell what happened when. He says, number two, the question is, what kinds of textual variants do we have? Well, I described that already. The difference between having... That there are some. Yes. Yeah, and there's different types and kinds of variations. Well, sometimes it's a difference between the letter A being there as a participle and it not being there. Yes. Or a slight different spelling. But it's usually inconsequential. There are almost none that have real consequence. Okay. That leads to the third question what theological beliefs depend on these texts in these yes. suspect passages that's an important question it really is if there are variations what impact does it have on our core theological doctrine right and that's I don't, a great question i don't want to minimize the fact that there are a lot of variants in okay. fact uh bart Ehrman uses this scary line that really is concerning and especially if you don't know the facts there are more variants than there are words in the new testament <laughs> Yeah. It sounds preposterous when you put it He that says way. three or four hundred thousand. Okay. Some say two hundred thousand, but okay. hundreds of thousands. Wow. But in context, what is he talking about? Is he talking about your New Testament sitting there on the table? Oh, no. He's talking about the thousands and thousands of copies that we have. Yeah. Twenty-four, twenty-five thousand copies, given all the different Greek and other translations. So it really works out to... About one footnote needed to talk about variations on every page of our Bible. About one per page. So, 8 to 16 per book, I think it is. I'll check that. But anyway, so, the question here that we're dealing with is theological beliefs. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two passages that are in great question. And they're bracketed off in our New Testaments. In every uh, one I know of, every different version I know of. Okay. The end of Mark, where it talks about handling snakes and drinking poison and all that kind of thing. Okay. And also, our very favorite, the woman caught in adultery. Now, there's lots of scholars who just say it's from somewhere else. It's a traditional story that got put in there. Mm -hmm. But scribes love it so much the way we love it, they probably just left it in there. It appears in different places, different books. Mm -hmm. It's recognizable from extra-biblical sources. It's, okay. for other reasons, we see that it's not really belonging there, but it does nothing to blow up the Bible right. or that book. Right. Now, I'm a lover of the King James Version, and I often read it. Uh, the beauty of the language is just unmatched by a lot of English translations. Mm -hmm. But I also know that the King James Version includes that story in mm -hmm. the New Testament. Yeah. Now, I know that some of the newer English translations that have 
been based on more recent manuscripts and mm-hmm. uh, or at least more recently found discovered manuscripts which predate ones that were used for the King James translation right. as you're talking about this process of vetting variants and looking looking back at the originals to piece together with ever, ever increasingly more clarity greater and greater clarity what it, what was really written in the original autographs some of those don't include that story right and some some right. of our newer translations in English don't include that story right and a lot of them will just make a note of it and actually use brackets so that we can know that these are not found in the original manuscripts. Okay. That kind of thing. Right. But again, the biggest takeaway here is that it touches no major doctrine. Mm. Nothing that matters about being a Christian, about God revealing himself yeah. in the world. Nothing about anything that touches on Christianity is even a problem here. The Trinity, the deity of Christ. Yeah. Right. When I think about that story, it doesn't call into question any of those key doctrines. And that's true across the board. So even with these two exceptions, they don't touch major doctrines. Mm, I see what you mean. So the bottom line is the, is the original New Testament lost? We did not lose the authorial intent of the writers. Yeah. And that's something that we have a problem with in our modern day. Again, I keep coming back to the fact that we need to stop projecting our own education, our own presuppositions, things we assume are true. We were taught by English teachers taught in the universities that the meaning of texts is in the reader. Mm. That is a postmodern idea. The meaning of texts matters most to the author who is trying to write to the audience. Yeah, he has an intention. Yeah, the authorial intent is what we need to be reading for, especially in biblical hermeneutics, which is just a fancy way to say the way we read the Bible. So we really have nothing tinged or truncated or taken away in any fashion from what the authors were intending. It's quite evident. Yeah, well, an authorial intent... You know, even for our listener who, say, has never heard that phrase before, that's kind of a fancy way of saying, I know what you meant by that. Right. I, I can, anyone who uses a text message has experienced this problem. Oh, gosh. Because of autocorrect, God bless it, often <laughs> loves to change the word that I typed into a completely different word, mm-hmm. which is a properly spelled word in the English language, right. but not the word that I intended. Right. Changes the meaning. It does. I, I think you texted me on your on your way here about something about an April luminary. I what? Yeah. And you caught it. And you, no, no, not April luminary. Yeah. You had to correct. This is not a springtime uh, <laughs> light. This is a preliminary thing. Right. And that's the meaning of the text in the intention by the author. Indeed. Not in not in me, the reader, that I read it. No, and I'm creating the meaning inside my mind. Not, not the case. You know, that discussion reminds me of how we would know whether something belongs in the Bible. And that's one of the tests for whether it should be in the canon or canonicity. And that would be whether it's orthodox or not. So April luminary doesn't belong in that sentence. No. It absolutely cannot be what he meant, (laughs) unless he's on drugs. Yeah. (laughs) But when we look at the tradition and the core beliefs that you mentioned, some of them, the Mm -hmm. deity of Christ, they chewed on that for centuries. Yes. The God-man whether he was the Messiah or not, and whether he claimed to be God, which is, again, the deity question. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things come through, and if something stood out as unorthodox or heretical, Mm -hmm. they'd see it and they'd toss it. I see. That's what the community would do. Yeah. Just like in the circle, 
with the unfun game. Not the telephone game. Okay. All right. So how do we know that we can use these manuscripts to regain the original writings to get back to that authorial intent that you're talking about. Okay. Well, we've spent a lot of time on the transmission process here. We're probably going to have to move on to the other things to just mention them. But let me say this. Bruce Metzger, uh, a scholar, did a comparison where he looked at Hindu texts and ancient other texts, and okay. there were maybe 90% pure. Okay. Sounds pretty good. 95. Yeah. Well, what scholars agree with is that it's 99% and up for the New Testament. Wow. We have more stuff to look at, many more copies. They were much closer to the time of the writing than comparative literature. Okay. And so, generally speaking, anyway. Mm -hmm. So, we also have internal evidence about what the Bible says regarding itself. Okay. So there's a lot of places where Peter will talk about Paul's writings and basically call it scripture. You can tell that's his meaning. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament, especially in Matthew uh, and other yeah. books. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of an internal authority stamp of approval going on there. Witness, if you will. Yeah, a witness. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you have it. That was my conversation with uh, colleague Byron Barlow and whether or not you can trust your Bible. I hope you feel a lot more assured in your faith, listener, that the Bible you hold today is very reliable. It's very trustworthy. It's worth putting your life in its hands, in the hands of the Lord. If you were struggling with doubt, I hope you feel more confident and more certain in sharing your faith. I hope you feel a little bit more certain about the source and the strength and the faithfulness and the reliability of the Bible that you hold in your hand today, because it has huge implications. Trusting yourself to the Lord and trusting yourself to his word, he changes you. He changes us when you do it, when we obey, when we uh, listen to his word. So I hope that's been impactful for you. I hope it's been encouraging to you. And I hope you've gotten something out of it today, listener. Uh, again, I've been your host today, Paul Rutherford, uh, with Head and Heart Podcast, uh, a ministry of Probe, Probe Ministries. If you have more questions, you can always go to the website at probe.org. We have answers to lots of questions on that website, and in addition to many, many more resources as well. Thanks, and subscribe where you can through your podcast player, and we will see you next time.